At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Kirk McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Community Church. If you're new with us, uh, first time here, we are, uh, we're glad uh, to have you this morning. So my job uh, here at the church is I tackle the majority of teaching and preaching on Sunday mornings. Uh, and so I'm just going to be right up front with you and let you know um, right at the outset of this sermon, uh, we are going to be cannonballing into the deep end of the theological pool, okay? Uh, we are going to be diving right in, uh, and, and let me explain why, okay? We preach through books of the Bible. That's, that's what we do here at Gospel Community Church. Um, we pick a book. Uh, we don't come up with creative names, mostly because I'm not that creative. So we're in this series on 1 Samuel. We decided to call it 1 Samuel. Um, <clears throat> So we, we preach straight through books of the Bible, and what that means is sometimes we will land on uh, a very difficult text, a very challenging text, and instead of skipping over that or trying to find some way to shimmy around it, uh, by God's grace and, and with the power of the Spirit, we just teach that text even though uh, it, is, it is very difficult uh, and very challenging to preach. And so um, it's mornings like these that I wish... Uh, maybe we didn't do this, <laughs> uh, but we do. Um, you know, maybe it would be better if I were uh, preaching uh, a sermon, something like, uh, you know, three ways to make you more money or, uh, you know, five ways to make your kids obey, right? Who wants that sermon? I do. Um, or uh, a, a sermon entitled, You're Fine Just the Way You Are, No Need to Change. Um, but but that's, not, uh, that's not what we do. We seek to preach the full counsel of God. Uh, and so we wade in. Uh, with grace and, and prayerfulness into weighty and difficult texts. And so what we're going to do at the outset of our sermon today is really try to deal with the complicated issue in this text first before we begin to walk through it. Here's the reason why. I don't know if your brain is anything like mine. When I come to an issue, what I, is perceived as an issue in the text, I really can't move beyond that until there is some resolution. Uh, meaning this, I feel like if I don't deal with this up front, what will likely happen is I will continue to preach the text and it, it'll be like there's a guy over here, like I'm preaching over there and there's a guy over here going, hey, 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 over here, hey, hey. So that, that's how my brain works. I can't, I'm so distracted um, by the text sometimes that I just can't hear the guy, what he's saying, because my mind is still trying to solve the issue that I found in the text. And so what I want to do right up front, again, is dive right in uh, and try to discuss and talk about uh, this, this very deep theological subject, this very challenging theological subject that we find 
uh, in the text uh, this morning. Okay, so, so ideally, verse 22 is the point of the text, but we're not going to get there today. Okay, so we can't get to the point of the text because we have to solve the issue uh, that is here in this text. Okay, so swim trunks on, masks on, right? Swim fins, check your oxygen tank. Here we go. Look at verse 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Listen, this is the Lord's commandment. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That was the commandment of the Lord to Saul to lead his people to destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites and kill them all. So, what are we to do with the God who commands this type of horror? Now, let me be honest, there's no way around this. So, so we can't, um, okay, let's go back and study the original Hebrew, which I did, and maybe it means something else. Maybe God doesn't mean kill women and children. Maybe he means just uh, kill all the men, but you know, kick the women and children out of the community. You can't do that with this text. There's no way to wiggle out of the weight of what is here, the, the horror uh, of what is here. How can a God of love, justice, and mercy command this type of violence? Okay, so, so you can see why I, I just, I, try, I tried to set us up, but I mean, now we're, we're, we're deep now. We're deep in the, the theological swimming pool trying to answer this type of question. How can a God of love, justice, and mercy command the killing of women and children? Uh, a very famous journalist, author, and uh, kind of world-renowned atheist, Christopher Hitchens, uh, wrote a book called God is Not Great, where he points out texts just like this and says that God is not great, that if God does exist, which Christopher Hitchens doesn't believe God exists, but if God does exist, then he is evil and not to be worshipped. And he's using texts just like this to, to prove his point. And so what, what do we say to these claims? What do we say to these charges? Maybe you've been in a conversation uh, with a friend or a family member or a, a, a coworker who has asked you this type of question. How can a loving God of justice command these type of things? I, I wonder how you answered, or I wonder uh, if you do know how to answer this question or these type of claims. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to think deeply with me. I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to write these notes down, because church family, if we're really on mission meaning if we're really out there sharing the gospel with people, inviting people to church, explaining to them that we believe the Bible is true, that, that we believe the Bible has the words of life in it, if you're really out there on mission, you're going to come across someone who says, I don't believe in a God who can command the killing of people. 
I don't believe in that type of God. And, and we need to be ready in and out of season to give an answer. And so we must answer these claims. And so let me be clear about Gospel Community Church's position up front. Gospel Community Church believes, I believe, that the Bible is true. Amen? The Bible is true. So this is not, this is not an error. The, the, a scribe didn't mess up here when he wrote utter destruction. Like the, the scribe should not have written kind of destruction. The scribe wrote utter destruction. The, the, the author of this book wrote down utter destruction because that's what God said. And we believe that the Bible is true. It is without error. In addition, we believe that God is just. Okay, so we believe the Bible is true, and we believe God is just, meaning God would never command something that was evil. So then how do we reconcile a God who, the Bible being true, and God who is just, with the text that we have in front of us today? I have five thoughts uh, on this, and I encourage you to write these down. Number one, when parts of the Bible are confusing or even disturbing, we must, we must remember the overarching story of the Bible, redemption. When we come across texts that are confusing and or disturbing, we must remember the overarching story of the Bible. What is the overarching story of the Bible? You can sum up the Bible, 66 books, in one word, redemption. The Bible is a story about God's people whom he loves, whom he created for his glory, being lost, rebelling from him, sinning, being separated from him. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God redeeming his people all throughout history, culminating in the arrival of the God-man Jesus Christ, who dies in our place for our sins, to join us back to God, ultimately redeeming us, the children of God, back to the Father. That's the story of the Bible. And so when we find ourselves in this type of text where God commands the killing of everything, we must remember this is in that context. We must know that ultimately 1 Samuel is about a king coming to redeem his people. And a part of that redemption is justice. Justice is a part of God's redemption. And so what we're seeing here is a part of God's justice being exacted out on the Amalekites, meaning this, God will not allow evil to go unpunished. Okay, mark that. God will not allow evil to go unpunished. And so in the Old Testament, what God does is he uses nations to carry out his justice. He uses the nation of Israel to punish and carry out his justice. In addition, when the children of Israel were sinful, he would use foreign nations to carry out justice on them. And so all of this is a story of redemption. All of this is a part of the story of redemption. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, God used nations to carry out his justice. In the New Testament, God uses the cross to carry out his justice. And in the final day, the final day that's coming, God will use the last day of judgment to carry out his great justice. And so um, look back at verse 2 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did. So understanding this text and why God makes this command to kill uh, these people uh, is really, really important for us to understand what it was that Amalek did. This guy Amalek 
and his people made it their mission to destroy the people of God. When they came out of Egypt, okay, remember the, the story of the Exodus? They're leaving Egypt. The entire nation is fleeing Egypt. They're wandering through uh, the desert. They're on the run. And so what Amalek and his people did is they came up from behind the nation. They, they came to the rear and they killed off all the people at the back. Okay, now, now think about this. If the entire nation is fleeing and going forward, it is the slow, the elderly, the women, and the children who are at the rear of the nation. And Amalek comes and kills all of those, uh, all of those women and all of those children. Now, this is not just a one-time attack. Uh, the uh, Amalekites actually have a long and bloody history of violence against the Israelites, against God's people. And so in Exodus 17, God had promised to destroy them. Basically, God says, Amalek is evil, the Amalekites are evil, and I will bring these evil people to justice as a good and just king. So the king, the God king, has given the Amalekites the death sentence for their evil deeds. Church family, this is a picture of the greater king that is to come and to redeem his people and to defeat their enemies. What we're seeing is a microcosm of the greater king that is to come and the greater day of judgment that is to come. Don't you, doesn't your heart long for the day when the king will come and defeat your enemies? Now, I'm not talking about your enemies like your boss who gets on your nerves. I'm talking about real pain and real struggle that you face in your life. Doesn't your heart long for the king to come and defeat those enemies, that enemy of depression, that enemy of addiction, that enemy of loneliness, that enemy of anxiety? Don't you want the king to come and fully kill your enemies? Well, this is a picture, a microcosm, a shadow of just that. This is a shadow of the greater king who is to come. This is a shadow of the great coming day of redemption for God's people and judgment for God's enemies. Okay, so, so step one, when we're looking at this kind of scary text, this uneasy text, let's put it in the context of the whole Bible that is within the story of redemption. Number two, there is a massive difference between a holy war or jihad and what we find in the Bible. I've actually been in several debates with people who have brought this up and, and said, uh, basically, there, there is no difference between uh, the Christian God and the Muslim God, right? The, the Allah commands, you know, the killing of infidels. And here in the Old Testament, here, here God is commanding the killing of infidels or non-Israelites, there, there is no difference between the Christian God and, and the God of Islam. And, and I've, I've been in that debate before. I've had this question uh, several times. But, but I want to be clear that there is a massive difference between a holy war or jihad and what we find here in the Bible. What we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is not, certainly not, jihad. And here is why. A holy war or jihad is when an individual or group fights for the name of God, okay? So a, a, an individual or a group will go in God's name and take over a territory. Like we, we took over this territory for, you know, our God, or we blew up this building in the name of our God, okay? That, that's what holy war is, or that's what jihad is. 
So, holy war or jihad is when an individual or group fights in the name or for the name of God. What we see in the biblical text is God fighting for his people. That is totally different. That is totally different. Here, God is fighting for his people. Again, this is a story of what? Redemption and justice. So this is not about Saul going and conquering a land or conquering a people and and doing it in God's name. Rather, this is God fighting for his people, fighting against the enemies of the people of God. So sometimes God kills people in defense of his people directly. Remember those stories um, that we've already seen some of them where God would send thunder or something would happen and the camp of the Philistines or the camp of the Moabites, whatever, they would get so confused, they would start killing each other. Well, that, that's God defending the people that he loves. When God says, hey, look, this nation is rising up against you, my people that I love, I want you to go kill them. I'm using you as my instrument. I'm protecting you. I'm loving you. That's totally different than trying to go conquer a land and just stamp God's name on it. So here's my example. Uh, Imagine you showed up to my house and you said, Kirk, you you see your neighbor's house over there? Like, yeah, I see it. Well, um, I went and I beat him up. I killed his dog. And now all of his stuff, it's yours. And I did all of it in your name. I would say, why did you do that? Right? I, I didn't want you to beat up my neighbor and take all of his stuff. I don't want it. It's like, that's crazy. Why did you do that? Okay, that's holy war. That's jihad. The difference here is if my neighbor kicked in my door and started to harm my family, and in defense, I then harmed him, those are two totally different scenarios. See the difference? So what we see here is not jihad. What we see here is not holy war, but we see God protecting and loving and serving his holy people. So this means that this is not, let me be very clear because I've had this charge as well, that in the Old Testament, God commands ethnic cleansing, meaning God selects a particular people group because of their race and demands that they be killed. That's not true at all. That that is not what's happening in this text. Again, the reason that God is calling for their death is because of justice, not based on their race. It has nothing to do with their race. It doesn't have anything to do with their race. It has to do with their evil attacks on the people of God. So this is not ethnic cleansing. This is not jihad. This is not a holy war. Uh, This is God protecting, loving, and serving uh, his chosen people. Number three, The type of warfare we see in the Old Testament is limited to that period in biblical history and is not for the church today. The type of warfare that we see here, it took place in the time of the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Jesus comes in to usher in a new covenant, creating a new nation. Who is the new nation? The church. The church is now the new nation or the new people of God. Therefore, the church is not a geopolitical entity. The church is not a nation. The church is now global, meaning our enemies are not other nations. Our enemies are not individuals, okay? So to be clear, everything God did in the Old Testament was right and just. 
But Jesus comes in to usher in a new age for the people of God in the world. Jesus brings the new covenant. So for the church or the individual to use Old Testament text to justify violence is to ignore the clear commands of Jesus. So so those so-called Christians who go and bomb abortion clinics or, or do ridiculous violent acts and try to use the Old Testament, they're ignorant, absolutely ignorant to the truth and the reality of Scripture. No nation or individual hears from God the way Israel did or the biblical prophets did in the Old Testament. You have to understand, this is a unique time in biblical history when Samuel is the prophet who is hearing directly from God. How do we hear from God today? Well, we hear primarily from God through his word, also through his spirit. But they were hearing from God in a very unique way, in a very unique time in history. The nation is is a unique time. The nation of Israel was a unique time in biblical history. So let me be clear, church family. America is not Israel. Let me say that again. America is not Israel. The church is the new people of God, which means we are not a political nation. Our enemies are not other nations. Listen to this. So the command is this. Because of the victory of Jesus on the cross, we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities over the present darkness. You see the difference now? Everything changed at the cross. Everything changed with what Christ did. Our fight is a spiritual battle, not a physical one. Our weapons are not guns and bombs, but our weapons are the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness. We're in a totally different war now. We are at war, just like they were at war, but it's a totally different war. We're in a spiritual battle and not a physical one. Number four. God's justice is beyond our understanding because we are corrupted by sin. As I've shared my faith and uh, talked with people, they want to ask questions about where I draw lines, right? Because we live in the South, and so it's, sometimes it's kind of okay to be a Christian. Okay? They're like, oh, that's nice for you. So let me ask you this. Here it comes, right? I don't know if any of you guys have been in that conversation where like, yeah, I go to gospel community church or I read my Bible. I love Jesus. I pray. Oh, you're religious. That's nice. Well, let me, let me ask you this. And, and usually what happens next is a question about where you draw lines. Well, let me, let me ask you this. What do you think about homosexuality? Oh, what do you think about genders? Or what, I mean, what do you think, like, I mean, do you have to, like, do you have to believe in Jesus or are there other ways? It's, it's a question about where lines are. And so when we, when we say we believe the Bible is 100% true, then we're affirming that what we see here is just. Okay, so if you say, I believe the Bible is true, you're saying what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God was just in doing this. Now, to our 21st century minds, we go, oh, no, 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 that, it, it, it feels like this should be wrong. And what I'm saying is, because we are corrupted by sin, even our sense of justice is corrupt. 
So, God's justice is beyond our understanding because we are corrupted by sin. So, why was this particular punishment given to the Amalekites? Let me, let me just say flat out, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not God. My justice is, is imperfect. My sense of justice is imperfect. So, so, I don't know why God did this. But I do know that I'm corrupted by sin, therefore my sense of justice is corrupted. In God's eyes, there are no innocent women and children. There are no innocent people. The world was corrupted by sin. That any of us are still here is a grace of God. So, here's what, here's what we do know. Our individual sense of judgment is incredibly suspect. Let me prove that to you. You ever been cut off in traffic? What did you think was the just thing to happen to that person? Bulldoze their house? Absolutely just, right? <laughs> Wrong. Well, what about governments or groups of people? Well, I don't need to give you a history lesson to show you that governments and groups of people's sense of justice is also suspect. So what that means is that at some point, we must shut our mouths and say, you are God, and I am not. We should leave the decision of what is ultimately just in the hands of the Lord. What I'm saying is it is arrogant to say, what does God know? I'm saying it's arrogant to say, God was wrong here. We are never asked to turn off our brains or not to ask hard questions, but at some point we do need to shut our mouth and say, you are God and I am not. Now, you might find this solution intellectually unsatisfying. And as, as, a, younger, as a younger man, um, I, I really did find this answer intellectually unsatisfying. God is God and I am not. I didn't like that answer too much. As I've gotten older, and I'm not old by any means, but as I've gotten older, I've discovered how little I know. And so I'm becoming more and more comfortable with that answer. God is God and I am not. Number five. Anytime we see this type of judgment and justice in the Old Testament, we are to be reminded of the judgment and justice that is to be exacted by Christ himself on the last day. This is, the Bible says, now go and strike, the, uh, strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Can, can you just in your mind imagine the sights, the, the sounds, the smells, the blood, the, the fury, the wrath that was poured out on these people of God's right, just judgment on them? It just, it's, it's horrifying. And I'm telling you, there is a more horrifying day of judgment described in Revelation. Way more horrifying. So, so if you want to play that little game that, that Christians like to do sometimes, 
Um, and, and even non-Christians like, like to say, well, I mean, the, the Old Testament God, he's very grumpy, you know, he's killing people and doing terrible things. But in the New Testament, you know, he calms down, uh, you know, he, he, you know, it's the same God. It's the same God. We're not talking about two different gods here. The, the Old Testament grumpy God and the, the New Testament nice God. We're talking about one God in three persons, okay? So God's wrath and God's violence, it's not rash. It's not as if God is flying off the handle in a rage. His wrath is true and just. And we must know that a judgment day more terrible than the one we see in our text is coming. Just listen to Mark 9, 47 through 48. And need I remind you, this is the words of Jesus. Jesus says, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye, then with two eyes to be thrown into hell. That's the words of Jesus describing the horrors of hell. Here's what Jesus says about hell. Where the worm never dies, nor the fire is never quenched. So church family, if, if you want Jesus to always be nice and polite, if you want tame Jesus, if you want Mr. Rogers Jesus, you have cut out massive parts of the New Testament and you are ignoring reality. So, this should sober us and make us fearful for the lost, fervent for the lost, passionate about the expansion of the kingdom of God, and thankful that we as Christians are saved from the wrath that is to come. Now, I don't imagine that I've answered all of your questions about this type of warfare in the Old Testament. That, that was not my intent to answer all of your questions about this. Um, my intent was to give a, a clear enough pathway for us to move through the text. Uh, I, I hope I have been faithful to do that, um, to, to say these are the reasons God is just and God is right and true, and, and we need not recoil from this, but we can lean into it, step into it with fear and humility um, we, we don't need to be ashamed and scared when this comes up in conversations with lost people and coworkers. But again, we lean into that with humility and say, God is God and God is just and God is, is right. And so now um, quickly what we're going to do, uh, we're going to come up for air. Okay, so everyone take a deep breath. All right, we're, we're out of the deep end of the theological swimming pool. We've made it out uh, alive, and so um, with the few moments that we have left, we're going to go through our text. Don't worry, we're not going through all of it, so uh, we're not going to be here until dinner time. Uh, we're just going to make our way uh, through this text. We're going to get started this week, and, and we'll pick it up next week, okay? So uh, again, what I wanted to do is take this time, so hopefully when we come next week, I, I, I won't spend any time talking about this. I will just refer anyone new, or I will refer you back to what we, the work that we just did so that we can move through chapter 15, okay? So let's jump in at uh, verses um, 4 uh, through 6. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell them, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from, the, uh, from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. 
For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So what we see here at the end of chapter 14 is this list of Saul's military accomplishments. I mean, it's, it's a very impressive list. If you're, if you're interested, it's in verses uh, 47 and 48 in, chapters, uh, in chapter 14. It says all the people, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and all these people that Saul conquered. And it's kind of like, yay, Saul, we like him. But then in 15, there is this long description of how Saul disobeyed. It's almost as like, yeah, yeah, he defeated all these people. Was he brave in battle? Absolutely. Could he lead our people, the people of Israel, onto military victory? Sure. But here is Saul's problem. He obeys half-heartedly, which is no obedience at all. That's, that's the problem that we see here. We saw him uh, make this terrible mistake where he made the sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to be making sacrifices. That was the priest's job, but, but he makes the sacrifice. He, he royally messes up. And so when we read at the beginning of this, chapter 15, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Thus says the Lord. It's like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. The Lord is still talking to Saul? This is... This is grace upon grace. Saul is getting a second chance here. God's speaking to him. God's giving him a commandment. And so now we're like, Saul, come on, dude. Get, get back on the horse, man. You, you've got to get back in there and obey God. Get back in there and, and obey God. He's given you this second chance. And so we, we know we've already talked about at length what he was told to do. Go kill the Amalekites. Okay, so you got the second chance to obey God. Go kill the Amalekites. And verses four through six are really exciting because it seems like Saul is just about to obey God. It's like, yes, he's going to do it. Look, look, look at it. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell them, 200,000 men on foot. He's got a pretty serious army. And 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in the valley. Then Saul told the Kenites, go and depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. So there's these, the Kenite people are hanging out around the Amalekites. And, and Saul's like, hey man, when we came out of Egypt, you guys were nice to us. So we're not going to kill you. But like, we're, we're going to come in guns blazing here. We don't want you to get in, getting caught in the crossfire. So you probably just need to move on. So he's gathered the army. He's got ready for battle. He's got these people out of the way because he's really about to come in and do some serious damage. And you're like, yes, he's, he's, he's going to obey. This is, this is great news. Okay, so all systems go. Looks like he is about to obey. Verse 7 and 8. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Awesome. Verse 8, look at this. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here's the word, alive. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Okay, so did he obey? 
But Saul and all the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and all of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was uh, despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Did he obey? No, no, he, he did not obey. The instructions were clear. But Saul was not in some type of moral dilemma like we are about destroying everything because clearly he killed everyone, but he kept the king. Why? Well, because in olden days, once you conquered a people, you would essentially humiliate their king. You, you know, strip them naked, you know, show them around, let people throw tomatoes at them, stuff like that. He kept the king to show off. Not only that, they kept the animals that they were supposed to to have killed. They kept these animals for gain. And it says that Saul and the people, did you see that? Saul and the people. So apparently the people were in on it too. It wasn't just Saul that kept King Agag and and all the animals, but it was Saul and the people. And you can almost imagine, you know, Saul's got this word from the Lord, right? Our job, listen, troops, here we go. We're going in, everything, done. And they get there and they kill all the people. All the soldiers are dead. And there's the king on his knees, tied up. There's all these T-bone steaks. There's all these lamb chops. Flaming yawn right there. And they're like, Saul, um, I want to talk to you for a second. Uh, do we really have to get rid of all these T-bone steaks, all the flaming yawn, all the lamb chops? We can hang on to a couple, don't you think? Do you think that'd be a good idea, Saul? And Saul's like, yeah, it'll be fine. We're, we're going to keep the king. We'll humiliate him. And let's keep all this stock. And then let's take it with us. Saul and the people decided to only obey a part of what God said. The problem is Saul listened to the voice of the people. Saul was the king and he should have stepped up in and said, hey, God said, kill everything. Let's kill everything. But instead, he obeyed only half. So if you're taking notes, half-hearted obedience is not obedience at all. This is the temptation of every believer everywhere. I'll give Jesus this, this, and this, but not this. I'll do my best to obey Jesus with my marriage, my parenting, and I might even serve the church occasionally, but my finances are mine. Oh, sure, I read the Bible and I pray, but I don't regularly go to church. I don't really need to do that. Half-hearted obedience. Why did Saul and the people disobey? Or or better yet, why do we disobey? So it's clear that they obeyed only half-heartedly. So why? Why? In that moment, Saul, let's keep these animals, man. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Why does Saul say, all right, yeah, we'll keep them. Let's keep the king alive too. It'll be fine. Like, how do you go? God said to do this, then you decide not to. Anybody ever been there? (laughs) You know God said to do this, and then you decide not to do that. Why do you do that? Why do I do that? If you're taking notes, blatant disobedience is a sign of a prideful heart. What's the answer? Why do you disobey God? Simply stated, pride. We don't do what God says because we think we know better than him. 
Saul, let's, let's keep these animals, man. Let's not kill all of them. Don't be wasteful. Uh, all right. We'll, we'll keep it. It'll be fine. I, you know, I, I know God's, God told me to do this thing, but this is actually a better plan, keeping some of the animals. It's, it's, it's better. We're going to see here in just a little while that their plan, whether it was really their plan or not, we'll discuss that next week, their plan was to sacrifice them to the Lord, right? We've got to, God, you want us to kill all these animals? Nah, let's not do that. Let's take them back and make them a sacrifice. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but when they sacrifice animals to the Lord, they get to eat the meat. But, you know, if they killed them right there on the spot, they wouldn't get to eat the meat. But, you know, hey, this is way, this is a way better plan, God. Anybody ever tried to get God to go along with your plan? The problem is God had clearly laid out the reason that they should obey, and the reason stands for us as well. God had explained to them, you need to obey and hear the reasons why. God was clear with Saul. You need to obey and hear the reasons why. And we can discover those reasons why God told, why it was clear that Saul should have obeyed and not been prideful. And these reasons stand for us. Look at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord, okay, so Samuel is speaking to Saul here. He's giving him the word of God. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. The Lord, this is what Samuel is saying to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. What does that mean? One, the Lord sent me, the Lord, meaning Saul is under the authority of who? The Lord first. Then it says, the Lord sent me, that's Samuel, to anoint you king. So who else's authority is Saul under? He's under the authority of the prophet, of the word of God. Thirdly, to be king over whose people? Is it Saul's people? No, meaning he's in charge of stuff that doesn't belong to him. Therefore, he should obey. He's under the authority of God. Therefore, he should obey. He's under the authority of God's word. Therefore, he should obey. And he's in charge of stuff that's not his. Therefore, he should obey. Church family, we are under the authority of God. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We are God's, God's possessions too. We're under the authority of God's word. I don't care if you like that. I don't care if you think it's a good idea or maybe, you know, it's like, ah, I don't like that. Well, too bad. You're under the authority of God's word. And thirdly, you are in charge of stuff that's not yours. Your house isn't yours. Your car's not yours. Your clothes not yours. Your kids aren't yours. Ultimately, everything that you have is a gift of God. Therefore, you don't get to go rogue. You don't, you don't get to make up your own rules and do whatever you want. We're under the authority of God. We're under the authority of God's word. If you're taking notes, the lie we often believe is competent people don't need to obey. Competent people don't need to obey. I know what I'm doing. I can make up my own rules. After all, it's my sexuality. I can make up my own rules with my sexuality. I can make up my own rules with my finances. I know what I'm doing. I'm competent. I've got this. That's the lie. That's the lie that we tell ourselves. And where did this lie come from? Sounds, sounds like a very familiar lie. 
What was the lie from the serpent in the garden? Did God really say not to eat this? I mean, did God really say that? What, what was Satan doing in that moment in the heart of Eve? He was putting the authority where? On her. With that question, with the question of, did God really say? He took the authority, or his attempt was to take the authority away from God and give the authority to Eve. Did God really say that? Can you really not eat that? Why don't you make that decision for yourself? Competent people don't need to obey, do they? We can make up our own rules and, and do what we want. In the garden, that crafty serpent was encouraging a prideful heart, and a prideful heart leads to disobedience. The other side of that coin, a humble heart, is one that says, God knows best, therefore I will obey. The last two verses we're going to look at this morning, and then I'll be out of your hair. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And, Saul, and Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. Now, um, we can get really hung up here as we see the word of the Lord came to Samuel at verse 11. God says, I regret. Now, Usually we regret because we made a choice and it ended up going bad and we didn't know that was going to happen. So does God not know what's going to happen? Well, certainly not. That's not the intent of what God is saying here when he says, I regret uh, that, that I have made Saul king. What's happening here is that God is saying that he is grieved. His, God's heart hurts because Saul is king, because Saul has been disobedient and he has led his people in disobedience. And so God's heart hurts. God is grieved over that. Why? Because when we disobey, it ends up hurting us. So God's heart hurts because his people hurt because of their disobedience. God's heart hurts because of pride that led to disobedience. Well, what was Samuel's reaction? Look at Samuel's reaction. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. This is not like, I'm so mad at you, like I hate you forever. This is an anger like, I'm so, I love you, and I'm, oh, I'm so mad at you. You ever been like that? I love, oh, I love you so much, and I'm so mad at you. I'm so mad at you. Why? Because you're hurting yourself. You're hurting yourself by being prideful and by disobeying God. That, that's why he cries all night long to God, if you're taking notes. When those we love disobey God, we should grieve for them because disobedience leads to pain 100% of the time. Disobeying God leads to pain 100% of the time. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it's not. Friends, let me tell you this. It's way more dangerous when the pain is not immediate. It's way more dangerous. Why? Because we think we've gotten away with it. And we think that it's okay. And so we disobey a little more and a little more 
and we go further and further and further away from the Lord, we grow more and more and more callous. But I'm telling you, disobedience, disobeying God's law, what God has planned for us, ignoring that altogether and going our own way leads to pain 100% of the time. God's heart is grieved over his people. God's heart is grieved over Saul. And Samuel's heart is grieved over the people and over Saul. Why? Because pride led to disobedience. And that disobedience was going to cause them pain. In close, I'll say this. What was Saul's greatest hang-up? We've said that clearly. What was Saul's greatest hang-up? Pride. That pride that led to disobedience. The good news is that Saul was not the final king. Are you glad Saul's not the final king? There was actually this other king who ended up showing up. This king was not prideful that led to disobedience like Saul. This king was just the opposite. This king, Jesus, was actually humble. He was so humble that he traded streets of gold for streets of mud. He was so humble that he traded his authority and his, his power for the cross. This, this king didn't say, God, I know better than you, but this king in the garden in the midst of his suffering said to God the Father, not my will but yours be done. This king was humble, and his humility led to obedience, and his obedience led to the cross. And so we are anticipating, we're looking at this king going, why didn't you obey? We, we recognize these things in you. We see these things in ourselves. And so we're longing for this greater king, not a prideful king, not a disobedient king, but we're longing for this humble king, this humble king who, listen, who won't listen to the people. Wasn't, wasn't that Saul's second hang up? He was prideful and he listened to the people about keeping the animals. But what about this king? What about our great king who didn't listen to the people? You remember when Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, that you should suffer the crucifixion. What if that king, King Jesus, would have listened to Peter? He wouldn't have gone to the cross. What if Jesus, while hanging on the cross, would have listened to the people, the people that came by and mocked him and spit at him and jeered at him? If you're the Messiah, why don't you come down off the cross? The reason that he did not listen to the people, the reason that he did not come down off the cross is because his work was not finished. You see, he was dying in our place for our sins, and until the full cup of wrath was poured out on him, he could not come down from the cross. But he comes down from the cross when his life is taken away, when his life is given for us so that we might have life. That's the greater king. That's the king that our heart truly longs for. The one who's humble, the one who obeys, and the one who goes to the cross and doesn't listen to the people. And so clearly, I say to you this morning, listen, obey the voice of God fully and completely, without making excuses or exceptions. That, that's the application of the text this morning. And the application of the gospel is this. If you're here this morning and there's been this red flashing light in your mind because you know you're not obeying in this particular area, in the area of finance, in the area of sexuality, in the area of your physical health, in the area of your marriage. If you know, man, I'm not obeying there. Listen, there's grace 
there's grace. That cup of wrath that was poured out on Jesus offers you grace this morning to first repent of not obeying. As we move into our time of communion in just a moment, I I encourage you, I call you even now to begin to repent of your disobedience. Accept that offer of grace and leave out of here walking in a brand new way of life, obedient to the great humble king who obeyed all the way to the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great and terrible text, this terrifying text, this shocking text that tells us of your pure, true, right, and holy justice. I pray that we would bow before it, kneel before it with our mouths shut and say, you are just and you are God and we are not. I pray for those in the room this morning who are uh, being afflicted even now by their disobedience. I pray that a spirit of repentance would fall upon Gospel Community Church in this very moment. Lord, send your spirit in a powerful way now to pour out a spirit of repentance in the lives of these people. Let them know that there is grace, that you love them, you grieve over their disobedience, and you are not the Father who is waiting with his arms crossed, eyebrows furrowed, mad, but you are the Father who's grieved over their disobedience, who has knelt down, arms wide open, saying, come to me, come to me. Let me hold you. Let me tell you that I love you. Let me tell you that I forgive you and let me show you how to walk in newness of life. Let us know that you're that type of father this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.